The Accounting Matters Podcast lives up to its name. Every other week, we bring you a new episode where we cover vital accounting topics that actually matter to accounting professionals. Each episode, we introduce a new topic and then highlight and discuss the key areas. We're your hosts, Adam Olson and Zach Smith, and we hope you stick around for all things accounting from A to Z. From Embark's headquarters in Dallas, Texas, this is Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark. Hi, hello, good morning. It's great to be with each of you. I'm Zach Smith, Embark's East Region Market President, and I'm joined with my co-host, Adam Olson, Embark's Accounting Advisory Practice Leader. Green or sustainability-linked bonds are becoming increasingly popular these days with companies as a means of raising financing. These are debt instruments that are usually linked to funding or promoting corporate social responsibility by meeting either environmental, social, or governance targets. While these instruments are good merits at their core, they can introduce some accounting complexities that can't be overlooked. On today's episode, we'll introduce how these debt instruments operate and what unique accounting considerations they bring. Adam, thanks so much for joining us. Of course. Glad to be here. So when we talk about sustainability financing, can mm-hmm. you clarify exactly what that means? Yeah, so I I tend to think about sustainability financing in just two broad categories. And I think you see a lot of this too, just in, you know, the press and you know, just in conversations with people that kind of play in this space. So you've got on your one hand, you've got sustainable bonds, which you'll often hear people refer to typically as like green bonds. And then on a related note, you've got kind of what you said in your introduction here, which is sustainability linked financing, which basically means you have a traditional financial instrument. So like a debt instrument, but as part of that debt instrument, it also has an element of ESG that's tied to the instrument and more or less embedded in that instrument. So that's kind of the two broad categories I think through when I'm when I say the word sustainable financing. Okay, so with that, let's just go ahead and get started with green bonds and dive a little bit into those. Talk to me about how those debt instruments actually work. Yeah, so the the big difference between like a green bond and just like a traditional bond, it really comes down to what's the objective of kind of the financing. So green bonds are really tied to sustainable objectives. They're designed to essentially finance projects um, of the issuer that are related to or impact the effects of climate change or somehow protect the environment. Um, you know, the ability for companies to finance these projects, they have benefits for investors because investors view it as like, this is good for the broader population, the world that we're offsetting emissions. We're doing, you know, we're doing good things for, for others and for the environment. And so that that's really kind of the upside, um, to an investor there as well. But Green bonds, you can kind of break down certain like characteristics or components that are in there. So like they're always going to have, you know, and and there's different types of green bonds out there, but they're going to have different types of the use of proceeds. So they'll, you know, some are very specific for very discrete types of green projects that they must be used for. So a lot of times the legal documents are really going to explain what are the objectives of the the cash you get, like what do you have to use them for um, specifically. They'll also include like just criteria for, um, you know, how projects that are fall within the scope of the funding, you know, how those get evaluated and selected. So, 
you know, sometimes talking through with the different lenders potentially about this is what I intend to use it for, making sure that that meets the criteria. Um, there's a component of it where you just kind of have to manage the proceeds. So, you know, you're the lenders or the people that are providing the financing um, are probably going to call on the issuer to provide some type of recurring reporting around the use of the proceeds um, just to make sure that they're spending the money on appropriate projects or expenditures that are permitted under the financing arrangement. So, you know, I think it's important that reporting is also an aspect that comes along with a, with a green bond and, and making sure that issuers are able to have that data, aggregate that data, process that data and provide it. I think in, in a lot of cases too, you'll see, um, issuers having to potentially get that, that reporting information assured to by, you know, an independent party or somebody just to validate that, yeah, I'm spending mo the money that you provided me on an accredited project or an objective that was, that was permitted according to the agreement. Yeah. So talking <clears throat> more about the reporting and some of the projects, talk to me a little bit about what types of projects specifically that we see companies using green bond bonds for. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of variety of things out there that you, you commonly see, um, kind of within the scope or the objectives of the green bond that might be issued. So, you know, some of the more broader categories, you know, you've got things around like sustainable mobility projects, you know, more or less like a company's trying to, you know, reduce their CO2 output with, you know, maybe the transportation of their goods or services. So reducing or creating more clean transport. So you could see things like investments in electric vehicles or, um, use of electric, uh, or just kind of a switch from, you know, traditional sourced, um, powered vehicles or equipment or things of that nature, and maybe go into something that's a little bit more renewable. Um, you could see projects that are derived around energy efficiency. So just trying to reduce or make, you know, make the use of energy, uh, more advantageous. So maybe this is like an automation type project and investing in automation because that inherently could help reduce some of the energy output. Um, there's waste management projects you see out there. So just trying to figure out ways to be less wasteful recycle, you know, making things more recyclable, um, you know, things of that nature. there's just kind of the general emissions type projects of so just pollution in general, greenhouse gas. Um, emissions, you know, maybe projects that go towards a net zero strategy or something that helps get companies um, in line with their net zero targets, things of that nature. Those are the those are probably the more typical types of projects. And like I said, some bonds may allow things to be more broad and fall into any of those types of categories. And then some financing may actually be very specific. And so well, there's an actually an identified strategic objective that the issuer is going to use the funds for. And it's very explicit that that's what the money's for. Yeah. And Adam, I know that we've talked on previous episodes around environmental credits and ESG and some of those things. Have we seen a recent rise in the use of green bonds? Yeah. So green bonds aren't new, like it's not something that's just come to the surface in like <clears throat> the last couple of years. So I think, you know, and just doing a little research myself, I think one of the earliest issuances of, of a green bond, I mean, it's, it's not that old, but it goes back, you know, to the mid 2000s. So, you know, we're looking at 15 plus years, years yeah. or so that this, this concept has been here. And I think, you know, back at that point in time, when someone was potentially issuing a green bond, it was probably a huge leap compared to what traditional financing was. Yeah. And so, you know, that was like the first step into responsible financing. But I think 
you know, if you fast forward to the last several years here, like there's been a significant growth in mm-hmm. the kind of the sustainable financing space. So, um, you know, in doing research too, just kind of looking through some of the metrics that are out there, you know, there was conversations that even from, you know, 2020 to 2021, we saw a 50% rise in the volume of um, sustainable financing. And like that trend had occurred for several years prior as well, just like constant growth in this space. So there's a lot of capital being put, put forth that's tied to sustainable financing. And then, you know, if you were to look at what happened in 2022, there's obviously was a dip down, but that's true for all lending, right? Just because of the general economic uncertainty and just, um, you know, rising interest rates, it it makes sense that you would expect a a little bit of a slowdown in 2022. But I don't think that's indicative that like people are now pulling away from this type of financing, there's still a lot of uh, support for it. And I think there's a lot of, of, of companies that are looking to issue debt that does have some type of climate or ESG factor tied to it as well. Yeah. So Adam, you had talked about some of the other types of financing around uh, sustainable sustainability linked debt. Mm-hmm. Give me a rundown on some of those types of debt instruments and what we can expect there. Yeah. So sustainability linked financing is probably the fastest growing type of like sustainable financing we have out there. And so this is more or less it's, um, you know, I guess like maybe just to back up, like the, the big kind of differentiator between what we just talked about with green bonds and the sustainability linked financing is the sustainability linked financing generally allows you to use the proceeds for more broader objectives, right? It's not tied to a specific climate project or investment or something like that. It's it's truly more traditional debt that also has a component that's probably tied to um, a change in your interest rate that's derived from some type of ESG metric. So you achieve a certain goal or not achieve a certain goal, it could have an impact to the interest rate you're paying on that debt. So it, it's it's got a related aspect to it, but the proceeds itself could be used for sustainable initiatives of the company, but could also be used to finance other, you know, things of the operations or just to provide liquidity or whatever the case may be. So there's there's a broader use for why somebody um, or somebody that issues sustainability link financing has than with green green bonds. So so then let's dive a little bit more deeper. Specifically, how do these work? Right? What is mm-hmm. from a financing perspective? What do we need to be thinking about? Yeah. So. Sustainability link finance, I mean, it, it, like I said, it functions very much like your traditional debt or your normal loans or revolving credit facilities. Um, so a lot of times you'll have a group of banks that'll come together and kind of fund the borrower in that case. Um, you know, I think the, you know, they price them very similar where they kind of have a benchmark rate, you know, that they peg to some type of, um, leading rate, but then, you know, obviously they'll add spread on there for credit risk and things like that. But then kind of the additional layer is there's going to be the sustainability linked component of it. So, and this is essentially, they're going to give the issuer a discount on their interest rate, or, you know, conversely could provide a penalty if they do or don't meet certain ESG specific targets. So just to like give you an example, you know, of a typical type of instrument, you could have like a seven year, you know, debt instrument that's got an interest rate increase feature that's essentially going to be triggered if the company does not meet the agreed upon like greenhouse gas reduction target that they set within five years. So, you know, the structures of it 
is, you know, like I said, you've got a traditional debt instrument here, but there's going to be a change in your interest rate if you don't satisfy this requirement. So that that is kind of the additional layer that makes the sustainability linked financing arrangements unique. Um, and like I said, we're seeing a, a growing rise in the use of them. Um, and that's just one example of a type of indicator or like performance target. There's different ones out there. So yeah. So, like, so what are some of those performance indicators that you've maybe seen mm -hmm. or you've heard about, um, that you can share? Yeah. So we talked about lower carbon emissions. That's probably a very common one you see, cause a lot of people are all focused on net yep. zero and just a reduction in greenhouse gases in general. Um, but it also could cover broader ESG like focus areas. So like. For example, from a social perspective around like diversity, like you could have a metric that's tied to certain, you know, diverse groups in certain executive roles. You're going to have X amount of people on your board or something like that. That could also be tied to some of the, the you know, indicators or targets yeah. that are attached to the financing. Um, you could have things that are tied to use of renewable energy. So the amount of renewable energy you're using. Um, you could have things that are tied to reduction in waste, or maybe also from a social perspective, it could be something around like, you know, work incidents or accidents or reduction and things like that, yeah. that just support, um, employee safety. So um, a variety of different yeah, so KPIs whole, or metrics, indicators, whatever we want to yeah, call Yeah, I think, them. you know, part of it is, you know, what's important obviously for the issuer, but then also for the broader the financing institution and their own investors and things Correct. like that like what things that they care about you know just kind of coming to um, a consensus on what are going to be um, the factors that do or don't drive this potential change in an interest rate yeah and you you're getting ready to kind of touch on that a little bit you know i always want to know why uh, why things are happening. So why do we think that lenders are taking on this type of debt, issuing it, going down this route? Are they seeing that much of an interest from the market? Is it because they're trying to hit their own uh, sustainability ESG goals and this is part of that? Why do you think that this is happening? There's probably no like, like exact answer for that, right? There's a lot of factors I think that come into play. Um, you know, I think one, there's a, a lot of regulation and just like policymakers and not just domestically in the US, but like abroad for sure. Like I would say the EU is like clearly leading the charge on a lot of uh, just sustainability ESG focused matters. And so, um, you know, they're really pushing on banks to pay more attention to just the environmental and social impacts of the transactions that they do with um, their borrowers. And so there's a focus there that they want to be a part of that solution. So we've definitely, you know, like we've talked about the rise in popularity and the growth in these types of issuances. So you can see there is traction being made there where banks are wanting to get on board there. Um, but I think there's also benefits for the banks themselves just around, you know, providing ESG focused lending really a lot of times people view that type of investment from the bank side as like lower risk because generally companies that do have strong esg policies do better perform and have lower credit risk tend to be more profitable um, you see this a lot in the deal space that you know the esg embedded into the company or the culture or the objectives does like increase the value a lot of times from a due diligence perspective, from a deals perspective. So, you know, there are upside benefits for wanting to 
provide this type of financing and take on um, the credit risk for you know issuers that want to um, look for that type of financing as well. Yeah. So obviously we're an accounting podcast. And so I imagine that there's got to be some nuances and some specifics uh, around some accounting considerations mm-hmm. that we need to think through. Let's switch gears and dive into that. Yeah. So I guess there's a couple ways to think about it from, you know, some, you know, we've been talking about debt here a lot. So we'll stick with kind of the debt <laughs> discussion as well. But, you know, broadly, this could also relate to equity instruments, I would say, you know, if there were equity instruments that also had sustainability linked features, but, um, you know, maybe starting first from like the perspective of the investor. So people that kind of hold these financial instruments, you know, there's, there's clearly there's guidance for investments in like debt security. So you got to think through ASC 320 when you want to think about how you classify or measure these types of instruments. So, you know, generally, if you got instruments that are classified as a trading type instrument or available for sale, it's going to be measured on your balance sheet at fair value. And then, you know, if, if um, investors have financial instruments that they've determined they're going to hold to maturity, then those are just kind of measured at your amortized cost. Um, But I think more of the complexity gets introduced actually from the issuer's side. Yeah. So let's dive into that. What does that look like from an accounting perspective? Yeah. So from an issuer side, so we, and we talked about two different types of instruments. So for just your traditional kind of green bonds, I mean, those really are just functioning as like regular debt. The big kind of like hurdle there is you're just restricted on what you can use the proceeds for. So probably, you know, you're going to account for that typically similar to other debt arrangements, ASC 470. Um, I think where there's a lot of transparency that needs to be made is just around the disclosure aspect of those terms and conditions of the use of the proceeds. Um, You know, understanding maybe if there are there are there penalties associated with the debt if you violate some of the the terms of that arrangement or how that might function. So just making sure that you're being like transparent with putting that information out to the users of the financial statements. Uh, but on the other hand, for sustainability linked financing, this actually kind of creates a few more wrinkles um, in the accounting analysis here because, you know, we've talked about <laughs> the big kind of like tricky item in this is you have an embedded feature in an instrument and that embedded feature potentially could change your interest rate. And so, you know, for accountants, like when they hear stuff like that, the first thing that jumps in their mind is do we have a potential derivative in the instrument? So you've got something that could cause some variability potentially in what you're going to pay on this debt instrument. And so that that tends to trigger the, the derivative question and whether or not we need to separate that derivative from the, ins- the host instrument. So in our case, the debt instrument here, and then account for that derivative instrument separately at fair value. Um, you know, a lot of times people will, you know, jump right to that analysis, but I guess I will, I will sidestep a little bit here and say that there is the ability for, um, for debt instruments to be accounted for at fair value. So companies could make the election that they just want to account for this ESG link debt, um, at fair value. So there's a fair value option and gap that you can do that. So if you do that, you actually don't have to go through this analysis of the embedded derivative. You basically just fair value the whole instrument. And then each reporting period, you would just revalue it and run that change through your earnings. Um, So that is an option out there. I think, you know, that could introduce a little bit more volatility in your income statement, depending on um, how the markets um, react to that type of debt 
or not. So just something to think through as well. Well, let's let's go down the derivative route. Sure. Uh, talk to me about what that guidance uh, would look like and give me an overview of how that works. Yeah. So we, we've tied in a I'm almost certain. I was going to say, I think we've had a conversation. We've had conversations around this, before, around this especially correct. like as it relates to like convertible instruments and yep. things like that. So it's a very similar analysis that you would go through with other uh, debt or other financing type instruments that also have embedded features. So I, I, I'll say that, you know, there's probably been a more in-depth conversation on this podcast, but just to like maybe recap it um, for our listeners here today. So ASC 815, you know, that's the that's the uh, standard that provides the guidance on evaluating derivatives and evaluating embedded derivatives in the host instruments. So there's essentially kind of three um, characteristics that have to be met for, um, for something to be a derivative. So the first one is you gotta have an underlying, a notional amount or a payment provision. And so, you know, a financial instrument, or other contract, you know, is essentially going to have one or more underlyings or one or more notional or payment provisions. The next um, kind of criteria is, is the initial net investment criteria. And essentially, like a derivative essentially has to have no initial net investment or just, you know, a very small or immaterial and inconsequential net investment um, amount to be considered a derivative. And then the last one, which is probably, um, you know, a lot of times throws people out of derivative accounting is, you know, the, the contract has to provide for net settlement. And so net settlement can be achieved, you know, a number of different ways, depending on the contract in the terms of the contract, but it must permit net settlement, um, or provide, you know, a market or something that could readily be net, you know, settled, you know, some type of market mechanism that could settle the contract. So, you know, if it, if it doesn't allow for net settlement, then you don't have a derivative either. So you got to meet all three of those characteristics to just, you know, at a surface level, have a derivative to even start then getting into the next steps of the analysis. Yeah. So that's where I was going to go next, right? So definitely a lot to consider there. Mm -hmm. Three, three points that have to, we have to meet anything else around the analysis that we need to consider. Yeah. So for an embedded derivative, it's not only just making sure, um, that embedded feature would be a derivative on its own if it were evaluated as a derivative. But then there's an additional factor that you have to evaluate and it's it's tied to what's known as kind of this clearly and closely related analysis. Um, and what I mean by that is like, and it, this is the same analysis you would go for, like I said, for other derivatives. So if you got a put option, a call option, a conversion option, you know, you're applying the same type of analysis here, but you basically want to look at whether or not the embedded feature is clearly and closely related to it, the host instrument. So in our case, the debt, um, I will say this area is where there probably is a lot of challenge just because it is, there's a lot of judgment that's required here. It's not always black and white. And as you can imagine, you know, the terms and features of different, you know, debt arrangements, for example, they can vary significantly. So, um, definitely have to spend some time here and do your due diligence. So in the case of like the clearly and closely related assessment, if you have an embedded feature that is considered clearly and closely related to its host. So in our case, the debt, you wouldn't separate it. So you just kind of ignore it and move on. And you would account for that as just a single debt instrument. Um, but on the other hand, if you have an embedded feature that's considered not clearly and closely related, then and it met that definition of a derivative, then you would have to actually separate that component from the instrument, fair value it, 
And then what it ends up doing is it creates a discount on your debt, um, your debt instrument, but then that derivative has to be marked to fair value every reporting period. Okay. And, and without getting into too much detail, can you talk through what is the general objective in making this determination? Why are companies going through that process? Yeah, you're... <laughs> You're really looking at in the clearly closely related analysis is just like the underlying economic characteristics and risks, you know, whether or not the ones of the embedded feature are those characteristics and risks really similar to the economic characteristics and risks of the host contract. Um, so do they behave in a very similar manner between each other? Because if they do it, then, you know, from an accounting perspective, it's like, there's no need to separate them because they're going to like essentially move in tandem with each other. So there's probably no, you know, very little value associated with that. Um, so you wouldn't separate. So that that's kind of the general premise for what you look at. But like I said, you know, I, I, I probably would for, prefer people back to like some of our podcasts we've done on convertible instruments or we spent more time on evaluating whether or not a host contract is or is not clearly and closely related to that embedded feature because there is a much more criteria to walk through there, um, you know, depending on the arrangement itself. And so, you know, I don't want to like shortcut it and oversimplify it, but just for, for today's conversation, we won't get into it. Yeah. Okay. Super helpful, Adam. You know, maybe if we can, why don't we talk through an example to put some of the stuff into context? Okay. I'll do, <laughs> I'll do my best here. Um, so we've been talking about sustainability linked debt, right? So let's just assume we're an issuer, we issue sustainability linked debt, the sustainability linked component is saying we're going to reduce our emissions. So our greenhouse gas emissions by a certain percentage, um, you know, in the next, let's say five years. Um, currently, let's say our debt instrument, you know, it's a 10 year maturity, and we've got we're paying a 6% interest rate, which I think is actually low for today's interest rates. So, yeah, it's a deal. Uh, there you go. It's a, it's a slam dunk, right? But let's say the the way the embedded um, ESG feature works here. So that greenhouse gas emission target, if we fail to meet it at the end of five years, um, let's say then our interest rate rises to six and a half percent. So that's kind of the the embedded potential derivative component that we're looking at. And then just for simplicity's sake, we're not going to do fair value accounting. So we are going to have to walk through this embedded okay. um, derivative analysis. So the first thing we're going to do is, like I said, does that embedded feature on its own stand alone as a derivative? So it's got those three characteristics we got to walk through. So is there an underlying? Um, the answer here is yes. So it's the underlying is going to be whether or not um, we reduce our greenhouse gas emissions in five years, like we said we would. The payment amount or payment provision here, you know, so we've essentially got uh, the debt that we got to pay back, and then potentially there's, you know, a, an interest rate step up that we have if we fail to meet it. So in our case, it's, you know, half a percentage point, so 50 basis points. Uh, there's no initial invest. We didn't pay anything for that ESG feature separately. So there's no initial investment. And then, you know, our debt arrangement does provide net settlement because it's just a contractual debt arrangement. We're going to have to pay it back. So it's a contractual net settlement there. So going through that analysis, we would say, yes, we have an embedded derivative or I'm sorry, we have a derivative that's embedded in the contract. So now the next step is whether or not we kick that derivative out and account for it at fair value. And that's where 
we then need to figure out is this ESG linked feature, is it clearly and closely related to the debt? So when you think about debt, like the risks associated with debt, you know, in most cases are always going to be tied to interest rates, you know, that, so if you've got a, a feature that is tied to interest rates, then in most cases, it's going to be considered clearly and closely related. Um, except for when you've got debt that's maybe issued at like a severe discount or something like that. There's you know, additional guidance around that. But so if we think about our case and whether or not we meet um, this clearly and closely related test, I know a lot of people stepping back and thinking about it are like, well, it seems like um, the embedded derivative does change the interest rate. So like on the surface, does it really mean here that we've got an embedded feature that is clearly and closely related and we can ignore it. And so I, I can see how people can make that correlation, but that's not the necessarily the correct way to think about it because truly the risk in our embedded feature, it's not so much interest rate. It's that's just kind of the consequence of the risk, but what actually it's tied to is emissions. And so emissions and is, does not have the same type of risk. So emissions associated with our, our ESG linked feature does not have the same characteristics and risks of a debt instrument. So in our case, we would essentially conclude that it is not clearly and closely related to this um, host contract. And so what you would have to do then is bifurcate that ESG feature as a derivative, fair value it, and then every reporting period, you're going to be stuck, you know, revaluing that and recognizing those changes in earnings. Yeah, I listen, I think that was helpful. I know that we've talked about the rise of climate related and ESG related matters catching the attention of both the SEC and the FASB on past podcast. Uh, Has sustainability financing been a part of that question? Have they spent any time opining on this? They haven't. They haven't issued anything on it yet. So like, I think that's you know, why currently everyone is, you know, using the existing guidance um, that relates to just any type of embedded features and in, in, in kind of, you know, financing instruments. Um, but given, I think, the rise in popularity that we've seen, um, you know, in our example for that we just talked about because of what a lot of the ESG features are linked to, you know, in a lot of cases, that's going to probably require for, you know, debt instruments and, and to separate those components and recognize them as separate derivatives. I think there's been questions raised is like, should there be specific guidance on these types of instruments because they are unique and newer and they're evolving and we're seeing a, a level of growth in them. So the FASB currently has something on their research agenda. Um, so it's not on their full technical agenda. So they're actually, you know, someone's raised the question or it's been brought from stakeholders or something. So they're looking into it um, trying to understand the issues, what they would address. Um, and then what will ultimately happen from that research is they'll present it to the board. You know, the FASB board will vote on it. And if they decide to move forward, then they'll move it to their technical agenda. And then that's where the project then would pick up steam and kick off. Um, they would do more research, potentially, you know, deliberate some of the questions, issues, et cetera you know, hopefully issue an exposure draft around the rules. If there's any rulemaking that would come around this. Um, and so we could see guidance come out on this as well. Um, and even so on the IFRS side, you know, like un- under IFRS there, you know, everyone's using traditional derivative guidance and embedded feature guidance under IFRS nine, um, to evaluate their contracts. And so whether or not the IASB also, you know, kind of falls into a similar boat and, and looks to explore whether there should be scope exceptions or, you know, different things that are provided, um, 
to these specific types of you know financing arrangements. Well, I know that you will be watching that closely and you will keep um, our listeners up to date on that as they continue to uh, walk through that process. Sure. Adam, listen, uh, as always, such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for making time. Yeah, of course. Uh, hopefully that this was valuable to our listeners and touching just briefly on uh, the environmental uh, sustainability linked financing and some of the nuances there and accounting implications that we need to be thinking about. So uh, to our listeners, thanks again for tuning in to the Accounting Matters podcast powered by Embark. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.